0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au.
1: Okay everyone, so uh, nice to be here again and to see you all. Uh, And uh, because we just had a retreat I thought I would talk a little bit about meditation practice perhaps, a bit about right view and these kind of things. it is interesting, we were just uh, uh, chanting the Metta Sutta, Met, uh, Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. Uh, and before that we chanted the homage to the triple gem, yeah, Itipiso and all of that. Uh, and uh, what is interesting about these things is that they really are about right view. Uh, Ittipiso formula is how the Buddha recommends we recall the Buddha himself, yeah, and then you have the Dhamma afterwards, how the Buddha recommends we should uh, recall the Dhamma, and then the Sangha afterwards, uh. and all of these things are really about right view, uh. they are about how to think about these things in such a way that uh, our mind inclines in the right direction. And you may be surprised to hear that when I say that the uh, Karanya Metta Sutta is also about right view. Maybe that sounds strange. Maybe you think that is more about sila or morality or development of the mind. And of course it is all of those things. Uh, but to be able to do that, uh, to be able to incline your mind in such a way, you really need to have a kind of the right values. Yeah. You need to have the right uh, uh, intentions. Uh, uh, the right preferences and, and when you have the right values and tend to give you uh, the right priorities. And when you have the right priorities, you develop the right things in life. Uh, and the more powerful you make that right view, the more clear and the more purposefully directed are your, uh, is your mind going to be. Uh, and so right view supports that whole development of the mind. Yeah. And moving it in the right direction towards metta or whatever. Uh, so it is amazing how important right view is uh, on the Buddhist path. Uh. So um uh what I <laughs> and um so uh it's quite a nice little tune isn't it the mobile phone. Yeah. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> See the positive things I have to. So uh, uh, right view, yeah. And one of the things I wanted to mention briefly, something I have talked about a little bit before, but it's, actually, it's very fascinating. And that was something that uh, happened at Bodhinyana during the rains retreat this year. So it's quite or last year rather, and it's quite interesting. It's quite a fairly recent thing, yeah. And. Um, Usually during the rains retreat, Ajahn Brahm will give one talk a week, and then I will often give a some kind of sutta thing. That's kind of I become a famous for my you know for sutta speciality. And I I love the <laughs> suttas of the Buddha. They're really powerful and beautiful, and uh, it gives you a very good overview of the Dhamma. One of the difference between the Buddha and, if you like, uh, individual teachers in the world is that the Buddha had seemed to have this very broad scope. His job was to lay down the Dhamma in a complete sense, uh, whereas uh, individual teachers tend to have their kind of take, their feel, how they succeeded in the Dhamma and these things. Uh, So the suttas are much more, and and for me, I always found it very useful. Uh, And one of the reasons I found it useful is because of the way Ajahn Brahm taught the Dhamma was just sit back, relax, go into the jhanas and just uh, have a good time. (laughs) And not everyone can do that. Yeah, You need a broader idea of what is going on, otherwise you can't get access to those deep meditations. So I find it extraordinarily useful to read the suttas and to base myself on what I would call the gold standard of what is Buddhist practice. And this sort of came up during the rains retreat last year, and because uh, I was doing the suttas readings, and then of course there's always questions, and you're very welcome to ask some questions at the end of this as well. Um, and one of the questions was uh, precisely about this, yeah, about oh, Ajahn Brahm. He says, you know, just uh, uh, you know, just uh, sit down uh, in your meditation, uh, don't do anything, uh, and just wait, yeah, and be very. Uh, patient about things, don't have any expectations, that's for sure. And as you do that, all the things in meditation just happen to you. All you have to do is sit back and relax. Yeah, And just things happen. He doesn't teach quite like that anymore. Sometimes he knows that people need a little bit more support. Yeah? So now he teaches a bit of body sweeping very often and relaxing the body and these kind of things. But the basic idea is just to sit back and relax. And if you are sit long enough and you are patient, Then all of these amazing things uh, will happen to you, and then of course he is the master of talking about these amazing things. Yeah, the bliss states, the peace, uh, the power of the mind. All of these things. This this alternative reality. Yeah, not not the opposite of fake news. The real news. Uh, This is the (laughs) and uh, so and so. It sounds really really great. And then of course this person they asked me. You know, but. uh, when I do this uh, it uh, it doesn't matter it doesn't happen uh, yeah, so why is that uh, <laughs> so and this is like the almost like the million dollar question, yeah, if we can understand why that is the case. Uh, why it is that when you sit back and you just relax, why your mind doesn't just go into these states uh, which you otherwise would think, uh, if we can answer, the, answer that question, uh, then we will have a clarity about the path, we will understand what is going on, uh, and everything will kind of open up in front of us and we'll be heading in the right direction. Uh. So it's a very interesting question. Why is not that one person sits down and relaxes, uh, everything happens, another one does it, it doesn't happen. Uh. Yeah, if we can get into the mind of Ajahn Brahm, yeah, <laughs> and do it his way, then we are kind of probably we're going to be in business as well. Huh? So, the, but the first thing here before we really get into that question huh, is to really understand what Ajahn Brahm means by relaxing, yeah? by sitting back, by allowing things to be, allowing things to happen, huh? because even that is actually quite hard to get right. Huh? Yeah, I don't know if you have noticed, but when you sit back and you kind of try to relax, a lot of the time is yeah, relax, yeah, let go, yeah, (laughs) allow things to be, yeah, and uh, we're not, and it doesn't really work that way. That's not what Ajahn Brahm means by letting go or by relaxing. Yeah, and to get into the right mood, if you like, or the right mode of relaxation. uh, it's important to let go of exactly those kind of things, yeah, whereby you're trying to encourage yourself, or you're trying to say what you're supposed to do. So uh, a very simple way of doing that uh, is that you imagine yourself, yeah, like, for example, you come and this is a simile, and uh, all, no simile is perfect, of course, uh, but imagine yourself coming back from work. Yeah, you're kind of tired, uh, you've been working hard all day. And when you are tired like that, often you just want to sit down. Yeah, I don't want to do anything more because your mind is uh, just needs to relax a little bit. Uh. So then what happens if you sit down in a nice chair, like a nice armchair or whatever, uh, and then you relax because you are tired? Uh, what do you do at that point? Uh? The answer is you don't do very much at all, right? That's kind of the point. You don't think in a certain way. You don't tell yourself, yeah, relax, relax. You don't do any of that. Yeah. You just sit down in the armchair and you chill. That's what you do. Don't do anything. You don't have to say, you know, say anything to yourself. And that is kind of the idea of meditation. The only difference is that you're not coming back from work. You're not really that exhausted, but we're always a little bit exhausted because life is just exhausting in general. Even when you wake up in the morning sometimes you're exhausted because you had a dream that kind of dragged your mind around or whatever else. But uh, the idea is then just to kind of almost get into that mood where you are just relaxing, you're just sitting back doing nothing, like you sit down in an armchair after work. That gives an idea what you're supposed to do. And uh, you may think, that's crazy, because if I do that my mind is just all over the place. Yeah, That's kind of the idea. Allow your mind to be all over the place. Because if that is where your mind wants to be, your mind should be allowed to do that. If you try to control it, then it is going often to make matters worse. So this is like the beginning, yeah, but it's not enough. And the reason it's not enough is precisely because if you do that, you find that uh, yes your mind settles down a little bit yeah after running around for a while it becomes more peaceful and you can feel that even when you do you know come back home after work in this way you can feel your mind settling down a little bit regaining a bit of energy and all of that yeah and uh, things are kind of going better but uh, it's often it doesn't Really get any oomph. It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Your mind gets distracted. You think about this. You think about that. Uh, you try to sort out all the solutions of your problems in life because that's what happens. If you get a bit of energy in your mind, you think, yeah, now I've got the power to resolve everything. And of course, that destroys the meditation. It destroys the peace. So we need more, but that is like the beginning. Yeah. Just learning to relax in the right way with the right attitude uh, gives you an inclination towards that. But we need more. And uh, this is where it gets really interesting. So we then at this uh, during the rains retreat then we started to discuss, yeah, why is it that uh, Ajahn Brahm kind of why it works for him but why you know you only go so far and it doesn't go any deeper whoever that is. And uh, I uh, suggested to them that the reason why it works is because Ajahn Brahm's mind is inclining towards peace. And because the mind is already inclining towards peace, it is directed towards that. It means that when you close your eyes, yeah, and you just uh, allow the mind to go, the mind actually inclines to peace. It goes towards peace like a a very good dog, yeah, it goes in the right direction. It knows where it needs to hang out, yeah. The mind is like like a well trained dog if it is kind of has all the right qualities in there. And of course, people looked at me and they thought, yeah, okay, maybe. And then as often they decided, yeah, okay, we, and or actually I told them, what you should do is, of course, ask Ajahn Brahm, Yeah, they have interviews with, with Ajahn Brahm every week, yeah? but people are a bit afraid of asking Ajahn Brahm, so they, I'm a kind of a proxy, yeah, and they ask me instead, uh, <laughs> ask Ajahn Brahm, he's not dangerous, yeah, what are you kind of, and, and it's, it's funny how that works, uh, yeah, I, and uh, and I can understand why, Because but I have been sitting next to Ajahn Brahm for so long, I'm not, I don't have that fear, but I can why people are a bit sort of uh, you know a uh, little bit uh, concerned or whatever the right word is so they um, uh, they went they asked that Brahma and they asked him the same question they said, yeah, this Brahmali he said this we're not sure about that, yeah we want the real the real answer <laughs> so they went to Ajahn Brahm, and they said, well, and then they thought about it, yeah? Because sometimes it's strange for Ajahn Brahm, I think these things are so automatic, yeah? That he needed to think about what he actually does, yeah? Because the process for him is just so ingrained, and he knows what he's doing so well, it's not hard. And he said, well, what I do, he said, actually, after thinking about it, is I incline the mind to renunciation, and that inclination to renunciation means that the mind is always moving towards renunciation. It means that stage by stage, uh, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. and At every stage, uh, the mind keeps on inclining towards renunciation until everything in the world, the world starts to disappear, the joy comes, uh, uh, the stillness comes, the samadhi, the jhanas, this, everything comes out of that. Uh, so that is how it works. Uh, yeah, That is kind of the trick. This is the the answer to the million-dollar question, really. You have to kind of incline your mind in the right way. And that inclination, in large part, is an inclination towards renouncing, giving things up. And as you do that, these things happen all by themselves. So then, how do we do this? Yeah, this may not seem obvious. Sometimes people don't like the word renunciation because they, it's just too challenging. What do you mean renunciation? I want to keep, hold on to my things. I didn't come to Buddhism to renounce. I came to have a better life. Yeah, I don't want to renounce things. I want my relationships to be better, my work to be better, my, you know, everything to be better. That's why I'm here. Not because I want to renounce stuff. I'm I'm just saying in general, I'm not saying this is how you think, but this is how many people think. So uh, one of the important tricks of for making meditation work and for how to get this renunciation uh, happening in the right way is uh, to turn things upside down uh, and to actually make everything you do in life to be a support for your meditation practice. Uh, so that instead of prioritizing your life, your ordinary things in the world and making meditation a support for the ordinary things, uh, yeah, that's what many people do, meditation is support for all of these other things. Uh, and what happens when you do that is you think about those ordinary things because they are more important. Meditation is only secondary. It is there to support the other things. Lo and behold, what happens? You sit down, you close your eyes, and you think about those other things. Why? Because your mind is interested in them. They are the most important. It's very simple, right? The mind goes to those things that are things that are important in the world. And if you take the ordinary things in life to be the most important, that is where your mind goes. So if you find yourself distracted by things, uh, that is why. This is how it's going. So we need to turn things a bit upside down. We need to ask, how can we prioritize the spiritual path uh, and make the world secondary, make the worldly things, the family life, Work life, hobby, whatever it is that you, we, however we live our lives, that should be secondary. Yeah. That should be the support for the spiritual path. uh, And then the spiritual path is the number one priority. Then when you come to your meditation, you're not going to think about the worldly things uh, because they are secondary. Now you're doing what matters. uh, Now you're doing what is meaningful. uh. So that is what it kind of comes down to. Yeah. Turning things upside down uh, and then making the spiritual life uh, the most important. uh. And I'm sure you can see how this works, yeah, and why that will work. It, and this will work sometimes, sometimes it will not work, sometimes you will think about things because your mind is too, is too obsessed by whatever is going on, and that's okay, don't expect perfection in these things, but move in the right way. So how can we do this in practical terms? And one of the ways of doing this that I like to do is to do sometimes a bit of death contemplation yeah, one of the remarkable things about death uh, is that death has many of the same qualities as meditation practice. Uh, many of the same things happened in the dying process uh, as happened in meditation. Yeah? It doesn't mean you're going to die when you meditate, but it, uh, it, just, uh, it just means that your mind is inclining in a similar kind of way. Because when you are dying, yeah, when you are leaving this world, uh, you are faced with the fact that you have to give up. Yeah. It's staring you in the face, it's becoming bleeding obvious as they say. You have no there's absolutely no choice. You have to give up. Uh, and that is why getting yourself into a little bit of that mind state of what it's gonna be like when you die, yeah, will help you to give up in the here and now. Uh, And meditation also is, as I just said, it's about renouncing, it's about giving up. So the two are very closely related to each other. And that is why people sometimes have success in meditation on their deathbed. That is why the deathbed is often said to be the time when you can make a breakthrough to real insights and things, Yeah, precisely for this reason, because you are face to face with the fact of having to give up. So Sometimes just take yourself through that process of dying and remembering, I don't know when I'm going to die anyway, so now is the time to be ready. If I'm not ready now, I probably will never be ready. Now is the only opportunity here. So you sometimes take yourself through that process and see what it feels like. Okay, what are the things I have to give up? I have to give up all my material possessions. It's very obvious, yeah? But that too can sometimes be difficult for people. We have some things that are very valuable to us, dear to us, yeah? But everything has to go, yeah? Your home has to go. Homes are often places we are most attached to, perhaps. Uh, yeah, place where we kind of feel safe and where we have our things and where we hang out and, and all of that. And uh, so this is... Uh, obviously uh, area of attachment for many people, but everything in your life, everything that you own in this world has to go. uh, Your home, your car, your clothes, whatever it is that you have, whatever it is that you enjoy here. So see what that feels like, to give up that. uh, Give up your attachment to those things. uh, Get a sense of perspective and distance to those things. uh. Clothes have to go, but even much more powerful than your... Worldly possessions uh, is all the relationships that we have with people in this life. Uh, yeah? People is often a very, very important source of, uh, you know, of uh, happiness and joy in this world, uh, but also a source of great attachment. Uh, yeah? It's very difficult to lose people that are close to us. Uh, people die, and it's very hard often. Uh. So feel what it feels like to give up the people in your life, yeah? From now on, I'm going to fare on into my own future without the people around me. And that will show you a lot about your spiritual maturity. If you're able to give up the people in your life, not attach to them, and just carry on on your own, let go of all of that, it shows that you have detached quite a lot and you have quite an independent mindset with the ability to move forward. Please remember, this does not mean that you become a callous, hard-hearted, Evil character, yeah, just because you act like this. In fact, it means the exact opposite very often, because attachments are really vested interest. Uh, if you are attached to something, uh, you are really concerned about yourself uh, and not about the other person. Uh, yeah, so it actually it is a negative thing. Uh, and so uh, don't think that this makes you uh, a bad character. In fact, it does the exact opposite. Usually you're better able to look after the needs of others if you are not attached in this way. So, yeah, so you let go of that. Uh, let go of the, all the things you own in the world. Then uh, you let go of the people in, in your world. Uh, uh, and then you let go of uh, a large part of your identity. Uh, yeah. Who we are. Who are we? Well, we, the things we are are so closely related to our position in this life. Yeah, Whether we are a parent or a child, whether you are the female or male, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are from this country or that country, yeah, whether you are one race or another race, whether you are poor or wealthy, All of these things gives us a sense of identity, it makes us who we are. But once you are dying, once you are giving up everything that connects us to this world, all of that identity largely vanishes as well. Some of that identity may go with us, but a lot of it has to go because it is tied down to this world. And there's something very freeing about letting go of your identity. Your identity is something that narrows us down, makes us into these individuals who are separated from the rest of the world. But when you get rid of your identity, you let go of that. It's almost like you, you become more, we become more equal in a sense. Yeah. We become more the same. And that is, uh, you know, a wonderful thing when that happens. You take away the barriers. uh, And taking away those barriers means that also your mind expands. uh, And that expansion of the mind is similar to what we do when we practice metta and those kind of things. uh, Yeah. You're allowing kind of uh, the barriers to fall away. There's an interesting thing. I don't know if I, if this is really. All that relevant, but I, I remember in, uh, you know, you have a Finnish monk here, yeah, Murita, he's from Finland, and one, one, of the things that Finland is famous for is the saunas, yeah, this is actually, sauna is actually a Finnish word, it's the kind of sauna you all know as like a really hot room, yeah, and in, in Finland, they're hotter than anywhere else, they're super duper hot. And, uh, and so the, and, and this, and one of the things they say about the sauna is one of the things they do, because in the sauna, you're basically naked, yeah. So it says, it makes everyone equal, yeah. And, and that is kind of the, one of the nice things. When you're naked, then there's n- many of the barriers and the status symbols you have are taken away, yeah. So you go into the sauna with your boss, yeah, and suddenly you're the same, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is which is quite nice, right? And then you are kind of on the same level, and you can have a different kind of conversation. You can relate to each other in a different way. That is a very worldly way of taking down barriers, but it's kind of uh, it's kind of nice. Yeah, this is the kind of the Scandinavian or Nordic way of taking down barriers. So there you are. But the Buddhist way is just a little bit deeper. (laughs) So uh, yeah, so take down barriers uh, and. get rid of these things that we identify with. Identification is always problematic. Yeah, I'm a Buddhist monk or whatever. It's problematic because it narrows you down. It separates you from others. Uh, That is always a problem. Uh, And uh, then, uh, your body has to go, yeah. And this is also very powerful because the body is also a large part of identity, something we are attached to in a larger, uh, to a great degree. So just letting go of the body. And what comes out of that, of course, is that what is left after you do all of that is really just the mind, the mind itself and nothing else. And that is exactly the sort of thing we're trying to reach in meditation. Yeah. Getting go of the body, letting go of the senses. That's another thing you can do in your death contemplation the senses gradually going yeah letting go of all of that and going into the mental world instead eh? so by going through a kind of simple death contemplation in that way. Actually, you're coming very close to what we are trying to do in ordinary meditation practice when we watch the breath. So giving yourself a little bit of a boost in letting go of things. Yeah, And this is kind of what this is about. And that helps you to have a similar outlook to what Ajahn Brahm has in his meditation. This is what we mean by renunciation. And you start to understand when you do this that it is actually extremely Pleasant. Yeah, it is very nice to let go of things. You realize that the vast majority of things that we hold on to this world actually are a pain. They are oppressive. They are problematic. And the more you let go of, the more you let go of your sense of self, the ego, if you like, the more you let go of the things that you, you think, you think you own in the world, but you don't actually own them. Yeah, because they get kind of taken away from you before you know it. This delusion of ownership is one of the great delusions in the, on the Buddhist path. The more you let go of these things, the better you feel. This is a strange thing. It's a strange thing how we try, we try to amass things, yeah, grasp onto things, thinking this will make us happy. But it's actually when you give those things up, that's when you become happy. We've got it completely the wrong way around. It's weird, isn't it? There's that beautiful saying that you probably heard before, where the saying that uh, what the noble people in the world uh, take to be, or rather, what the ordinary people in the world take to be happiness, uh, the noble ones say is suffering. Yeah? yeah, And what the ordinary people think are suffering, the noble ones say is happiness. Uh. So we get things almost hundred percent the wrong way around. Uh. So letting go, that is where that happiness arises uh, because you are freeing the mind, liberating uh, things uh, instead of narrowing things down and making them very kind of contracted. Uh. So death contemplation is one way of doing this uh, and that leads to this feeling of letting go, yeah? of, of, of uh, renunciation, if you like. It's quite simple when you, when you think about it. Uh. But there is um, more to it. Uh. There are other ways of learning to let go and one of the Great opportunities now. And of course, what happens is that even though we have that great opportunity now, people tend to forget it so fast. But uh, right now, we still have this COVID 19 running around the world. Yeah. And people think COVID 19 is so much suffering. I don't know. Do you think it's suffering? Or do you think it's okay? Or is it neutral? Or is it uh, good, bad? Who knows? Or what do you reckon? Uh, Okay. You don't have to answer. Yeah. It's a rhetorical question. So. This is the thing, a lot of people think this is bad. But that really depends on how you deal with it, how you think about it. In the monasteries, we think COVID-19 is great. Yeah, everything became very quiet for a while in our monastery in Perth. Nobody, people stopped coming to the monastery to just kind of drop the food off. And they dropped off more food than usual. That was kind of the amazing thing. And then they dropped it off and drove, drove home, like driving for one hour or hour and a half, shopping, doing all of that, coming to the monastery, staying there for two minutes. Ajahn Brahm gives you a quick blessing, you know, at a big distance, and then you, you drive off. Again. Uh, and it's kind of amazing. I, one of the things that you find is actually how kind sometimes people become in these difficult times. Uh, yeah, it is, uh, that was one of the beautiful things. We could certainly see that in the monastery. Uh, people became more generous, more kind, more willing to help out. Uh, it was it was marvelous to see that. Uh, but uh, for us it was great, yeah, and uh, everyone says, oh the monastery hasn't been this good for. For years, for a long time, it's been it's been so quiet and so peaceful. Uh, But um, actually, it is that's that's not really fair to put it that way either, because uh, the reality is it's often a very nice interaction between the lay people and the monastics. So so it's just a matter of perception. But it was very it was unusually peaceful. That is still true, though. So what is it? Is it good or bad? Well, it depends on how you use it, how we deal with these things. And of course, one of the really important points about COVID-19... Is that these things are to be expected? Yeah, I mean the, we we know that all the world world health uh, authorities or the World Health Organization, all of these, uh, they said we can expect a pandemic to come every so many years, every few decades. There will be a pandemic, and you look at human history; there's always been pandemics around. Uh, so the fault is ours for not expecting it. Uh, yeah, when it comes, we just said, "Oh yeah, pandemic. Yeah, what are you oh, you're on? This is another pandemic. What do you, <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah, that's life. Uh, life is." full of pandemics. And if it isn't a pandemic, it's something else. COVID-19 is a metaphor for all the things that go wrong in the world. And there are a lot of things that always potentially could go wrong in the world. I remember just not long ago we had the Cold War. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. And uh, uh <laughs> And uh, that was a very difficult time for people. Yeah, there's the feeling of mutual annihilation being possible because of the atomic weapons. Uh, one person presses the wrong button at the wrong time. Uh, yeah, imagine having Donald Trump in office during the Cold War. That would have been scary, much more scary. <laughs> no, I, sh- I shouldn't. I, I don't really mean to be political. I just. Uh... But um, so. Um, yeah, so there's always these problems in the world, and right now there's also lots of problems in the world, but it's always been like this to some extent. There's always been problems around, always things going wrong and, and, and going funny, yeah. And so COVID-19 is just a reminder of that, a reminder of the problems in the world. The world is never stable. The world is always out of control. The world is always doing what you don't expect it to be doing. Yeah. And sometimes it goes better, sometimes it goes worse, but we have no idea where it's heading next. And when you have no idea, it's scary because we want stability in our lives. If World War III is just around the corner, uh, that's not a very nice thought. Uh, yeah, If climate change is going to lead to massive problems in the world, it is not a nice thought. Uh. What exactly is going to happen, we don't know. It's just impossible to know. But that uncertainty itself uh, is a cause for concern because it's unpleasant to live with that uncertainty, uh, never knowing what's going to happen. Uh. So this is the great opportunity uh. Very often what happens is that you come out of a problem like COVID-19 and you say, oh yeah, now life is going to go back to normal. There is no normal. Yeah, Forget about normal. It doesn't exist. Things are always changing, moving around. Normality, there's no such thing. It's the same reason why we can't compare each other to each other. We cannot say, I'm like this, you're like that, because there is no normal inside each one of us. It's always changing, always moving around. And when you get that, that there is no normal, uh, things are always so uncertain, you become more wary of the world. uh, And this is a beautiful way of distancing yourself from, this is a beautiful way of renouncing a little bit, uh, yeah, of understanding the problem, understanding if you want to find a real solution in life, uh, that solution is not found in the external world of the five senses, because that's what really what it is, uh, because that world is inherently Inherently, right, deeply flawed all the way to the core, there's nothing there you can hold on to. It's like a carpet. you're walking on a loose carpet, and someone is always trying to pull the carpet from under your feet. You can never stand anywhere. Standing is here a metaphor for grasping, clinging and attachment and nothing you can attach to as soon as you try to stand as soon as you try to get a foothold, someone will come and pull the carpet out, and that someone is nature itself and nature is just nature, there's nothing, you can't control it, you can't change it. So this is the problem, and it leads to a change in values. And I'll tell you another story which I I really enjoyed when I read it many years ago for the first time. And I was really kind of, it Really, was one of the things that had a kind of powerful influence on me in my life, because I thought, wow, this shows you a different way of thinking about the world. And I probably told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because uh, that's, that's what life is about, telling stories again and again and again. Yeah. That's what we do as monastic. I learned this from Ajahn Brahm. He is a, and, and it, this is very important. Yeah. And the Buddha does the same thing because stories are often so many levels to them. And it takes a while before they really sink in properly. Yeah? And so this was a story from uh, back in Norway. Norway was, is where I was born, and now I'm also Australian citizen, so I don't really know what I'm now, I'm probably just confused, but you know. So, But anyway, so this was back in Norway during the Second World War. And uh, after the Second World War, there was this fellow who wrote a book about the war. Uh, and this book was called The Human Being, Happiness, Human Beings and Happiness, or something like that. Uh, and one of the things he talked about was the paradox of happiness. Uh, how happiness sometimes emerges in situations where you might not expect it. Uh, yeah? And he told the story of how during the Second World War, which was, uh, Norway was not very badly affected by it. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, it, we were invaded. Norway was invaded by the Germans, but it wasn't any kind of destruction, wholesale destruction of society as you had in some of the other European countries. You're fairly Small scale, everything yeah Even though we were affected by the usual things, you know, the Norwegian Jews sent to the concentration camps and that kind of stuff that happened in Norway as well. Huh? But Norway had a very small Jewish population, so it wasn't so uh, so big in Norway. Huh? Uh, but so, what happened during the Second World War? Yeah, it was a time of great difficulty for people. Huh? Many people had family members who were interned in concentration camps, or were killed, or were uh, many would leave home and they would kind of retract to the Norwegian forest to kind of be a resistance force, yeah, from, from afar. And there was a lot of, uh, Problems, yeah, so there was some destruction. It was very hard to get ordinary requisites for life. Food was being rationed during the Second World War because imports became very difficult, yeah, because of uh, the war going on. And Norway is a very cold country, so it's very hard to grow all that much food. And of course, all, all other requisites for life also difficult to come by. So it was a very hard and difficult period for people in general. People suffered a lot in the superficial And uh, then this fellow who wrote this book, uh, he said that what was so strange was that despite all that suffering uh, on the surface, uh, under the surface people were very often more happy than they had been during peacetime just before the war just before it was the 1930s or whatever yeah and he compared people's life before the war and then during the war and he said people were often much more happy And the question then was, why was that the case? How could, when all the external things, all the world was kind of collapsing around you, still you felt more happy? Maybe you felt guilty about being happy. I'm happy, gee, that's really bad, yeah? And that's kind of how the human mind sometimes works. We feel guilty about being happy, which is really crazy, yeah? Okay, I'm happy. Why is that? And it should... Investigate it instead of feeling guilty about it. It's okay to be happy regardless, really. If you go to a funeral and you're happy, it's okay. You can be happy at the funeral service, yeah? And sometimes that happens. Especially if Ajahn Brahm leads a funeral, he will tell a joke. Everyone bursts out laughing at the funeral. I've, I've seen this happening in a few times. And it's kind of nice. It kind of breaks some of that somber atmosphere. Yeah. And it, uh, it, it points things in a different direction. But even during war, you can be happy. And he said the reason he thought why people were happy is because their values changed. Uh, suddenly there was a common enemy, huh? yeah, the Nazis, uh, and then uh, everyone kind of banded together, huh? and everyone sort of felt a sense of comradeship, uh, a sense of common purpose of helping each other or caring for each other. Yeah, I don't know; they probably didn't care for the Nazis. There still was an enemy, obviously, but still there was some something that uh, brought people together, and they dealt with each other with a sense of care that we don't normally do in ordinary life because in ordinary life we're too busy with the worldly things to really care for each other properly to look after each other yeah because in ordinary life while everything is going well there's no you know we, we can be can afford to be less less kind to each other yeah. So this was this uh, amazing thing, yeah, that happened during the Second World War. It actually brought people together. Yeah. They became kinder. Yeah. And what it really did, when you think about it, what it did was it brought out spiritual qualities. Uh. When the world is no longer reliable, uh, when the five senses aren't reliable, when the things that you normally Uh, Depend on, can no longer be depended on, you have to go to a different kind of resource. uh, And those are the spiritual resources. uh, And you go inside and you ask, how can I live well instead? Uh, That was the lesson for this man during the Second World War. People became more spiritual. uh, They became kind in a different way. Uh, And this is exactly how we should deal with the COVID situation. This is how we should deal with climate change. This is how we should deal with wars and political instability or whatever it is in the world that is funny. Yeah, When we talk about the five senses, this is what we mean. It is that world outside of us in a very large scale, also in the small scale, family life, our individual experience, but also the large scale, how the large world impacts on us in this way Yeah. That is how we deal with it. We understand how problematic it is. We turn in a different direction and we move towards the spiritual life instead. What is that spiritual life? It is whatever develops your mind. It is the ability to be kind, the ability to be caring, the ability to be compassionate, the ability to be peaceful, the ability to uh, withdraw inside and experience deep meditation. Yeah, That withdrawal inside is precisely giving up of that external world uh, and is going into your real home, as uh, Ajahn Shah famously said, Yeah, a place where you can be safe from the external problems. Uh, so that is the right attitude towards all of this. Uh, and what matters now that we have, uh, you know, uh, we have, we kind of maybe on, on the tail end of COVID. Well, hopefully eventually we come to the tail end. It seems to be going, dragging on and on and on. But when we're coming to the tail end of COVID, it's important that we don't forget. Uh, yeah, that we kind of back to business as usual and back to the same old things. Uh, that is tends to be the human, uh, fault or flaw in how we forget every time things go badly and then we, you know, someone dies and after a few years we've forgotten about that and we live ordinary again as if no one is ever going to die. We have a war and then after the Second World War, of course, in Europe, Europe was really devastated by the Second World War. Something like 80 million people died during the Second World War. A lot of those in Europe. And... Um, But then, you know, people say never again. We don't want to do this again. This is so much, so much suffering. Yeah, it's really, really bad. And then you create the European Union to kind of. Part of that is to stop the world war, uh, stop future wars. Uh, yeah, there's been so many wars in Europe. Uh, it's a small place with lots of different languages, lots of different cultures, all kind of on top of each other. It's a recipe for war, right? It's, uh, my culture is better than yours, and you, you speak the wrong language. I'm better than you are. Okay, well, let's fight it out. Uh, and then kind of that's what happens. This is the human kind of human. Crazy madness. Uh, and so they create the uh, European Union and then, you know, very clear we don't want this to happen again. And then of course you, you forget. Uh, time goes by and all those uh, lessons that were there, the people who were part of the Second World War, they have died. Uh, next generation is kind of getting older. And it kind of drifts into a distant memory and you forget the horrors of war. You forget how bad it actually is. Uh, and then you move towards greater antagonism again. And I think this is what we are seeing, yeah, right now people forgetting these things. So one of the most important jobs that we can do as Buddhists is not to forget, yeah, to remember the reality. This is what we mean by right view. Right view is to remember the reality of things, to remember the instability of the world, how out of control it is, how we cannot really have things the way we want them. They're always going to go counter to what we really desire. And as we remember that, we remember the, all the COVID-19s of life, uh, and there's just one COVID-19 after the other. Uh, yeah. And if you remember that, uh, then you will not, you won't go wrong. Uh, and you will be kind of heading in the right direction. And that is what we need to do now. And this is how you come to this idea of renouncing the world a little bit. Uh, stage by stage, understanding its limitations. And as you do that, your mind becomes more peaceful in meditation. Why? Because all of those things that you cling to, all of those things that you hold on to the world, you cling a little bit less, you hold on a little bit less, it allows your mind to withdraw inside a little bit more. There's an inverse relationship. Yeah, inverse relationship. I used to be engineers. I'm into kind of this kind of terminology. Inverse relationship between um, your holding on to the world and your ability to meditate. And this is then how it gradually comes about. Yeah, gradually letting go of uh, letting go of these things. And uh, so that is uh, uh, our our job. And this is what we have to have to do. And this is how you gradually do that. But how? Do we remember? This is one of the things that I've always been kind of one of those very important questions. How can we remember? If the whole world cannot remember, how can we remember? How can we be different from the whole world? Uh, I know that there is that uh, old famous saying, uh, the saying that uh, for those people who don't learn from history, they are bound to repeat it. Yeah, you know that saying. It's a kind of well-known saying in the world, and it's invented by some philosopher or something, some decades ago. And it's a nice, actually quite a nice saying. If you don't, if you don't learn your history, you're bound to repeat it. The idea is precisely that we kind of go back into the world, do the same mistakes again and again and again. And there is something to that. I think if we do learn a bit about history, we will help us a little bit. But what I've also noticed is that we tend not to learn from history. Yeah. You read the history books and then you cannot really imagine what it is like. Yeah. You may read about war. You may read about the uh, terrible times in the middle ages, perhaps when you had the witch hunts and the inquisition in Europe and all that kind of stuff. And you read about it, but it doesn't really sink. Home, yeah, it's as if we can't really feel it properly. So even when you do learn about it, maybe we should teach history in a new way. I wonder whether we're teaching history in the wrong way. We should have more immersion, yeah. You, can, you get into there, you are part of the movie. You kind of, maybe you don't get killed. That's taking, taking the, uh, the, the, the virtual reality too far when you actually die. But, um, that could be counterproductive, but we need to make it more real, yeah. You know what they say, they're saying that um, the first casualty of war is the truth. Yeah, Because as soon as you have a war, you start showing the war. You never show what actually is happening. If you show all the mothers who are grieving over their children, the children who become orphans because they lost their parents, the wife and the husband who lose their partner. If you show all the horror, all the grief, all the terrible... Sadness of war, you won't get your population behind you. The population is not going to support it. The population is going to say, Don't go to war. It's crazy. So, you never show the truth. Instead, you show, Yeah, we've got this really nice, uh, you know, super duper computer system that guides the missiles right into the right place. And all we do is kind of blow up the kind of the the opposition's ammunition. That's all we do. And people gen- generally are okay. Don't worry too much about it. Yeah. So, the first casualty of war is the truth. But what we should do if we we really don't want to have war in the future we should show what actually it is like how much suffering it creates and this i think will be a far more powerful history lesson so in schools we should be we probably should teach maybe history in a more in a slightly more realistic way maybe they do that now maybe it's a long time since i was a school child so i am not really sure how that works but this is how you gives you an idea of how we can remember as Buddhists. What we have to do is we have to renew that uh, memory uh, of the world being problematic, being unreliable, being uncertain, always changing, not being something you can hold on to. uh. And the way to do that is always to come back to these Buddhist teachings, uh, always remind ourselves that I'm really happy one of the reasons I like to give talks is because it's also a chance for me to remember the uh, teachings, yeah? When I teach, you may think that I'm teaching you, but no, I'm actually teaching myself, uh, yeah? I'm, I'm really happy that you are here because if you weren't here, I probably wouldn't be giving a talk to myself. So it's actually helpful to have a few people here. Yeah. So thank you for coming. But it is actually, it is true though. It is actually a, a way for the teacher. Often the teacher is the one who learns the most because I have to actually think about this. It's more powerful for me in a sense. You are like the passive recipients, but when you have to teach, you become more actively involved for obvious reasons. So make sure you come back to these teachings. Make sure you ask questions about them. Make sure you take the opportunity to be the teacher. Yeah. If you have the chance, being a teacher is a great thing. It's one of the best things you can do is to actually teach others because that really makes you think about these things in a new way. So if uh, the president asks you, okay, would you like to teach? Yeah. Or if he himself want to teach, please take the opportunity. Don't be shy. Don't think you can do it. And if only one or two people show, show up. You know, to the teaching that happens sometimes, only one person comes, you think, okay, well, still, let's have a conversation about these things. So come back to these teachings, engage with them, reflect on them, try to understand what is going on. Yeah. And as you do that, gradually, gradually, your mind turns around, looks at things in a new way, and then your meditation becomes more profound. The world is receding slowly. It's not a shock therapy. It's not like you're going cold turkey. yeah. This is the real cold turkey. It's when you give up all the sensual happinesses of the world. You don't go cold turkey. You gradually move away from it. That is the right way to do it. If you go cold turkey, you won't be able to deal with it, and then it's not going to work out. So just go slowly. What feels comfortable? Make sure it is an enjoyable path. And letting go of the world actually is very enjoyable. It is very peaceful. It gives rise to all of these beautiful qualities. And and then you are doing it in the right way. Uh, it's so important that the spiritual path should be enjoyable. Uh, yeah, there's enough problems in life already. Uh, I don't know if you if you haven't got enough problems, and uh, let me know afterwards, and I'll uh, I'll uh, <laughs> tell uh, whatever. <laughs> so uh, there is enough problems, uh, and the spiritual path should be something that enhances our quality of our life, not that detracts from it. Uh. And uh, it's funny, it's taken me a long time even as a monk to really see that clearly yeah, and not to kind of uh, make this this teaching something oppressive. So when we give up, when we renounce we should see the beauty of renunciation. We should see how it is healthy, how it leads to more stability of mind, how it leads us on the spiritual path, how it makes us better human beings, more caring, more kind, not more callous and hard-hearted, but more gentle and more useful for ourselves and for society around us, uh, then you're heading in the right direction. uh. So this is what Ajahn Brahm does, uh, and this is what we have to do to have the same kind of success in our meditation as Ajahn Brahm has. uh. When Ajahn Brahm sits back uh, and just relaxes, uh, he lets go of the world, because he knows very, very deeply uh, that the world is problematic. So we should try to approximate that. And then when you do that, when you have that right view, this is a very important part of right view. When you have that part of right view, then you too. When you lean back, when you relax, when you enjoy yourself, your mind will, like a good dog, yeah, would go to the right place and hang out in a place where it is letting go rather than clinging on. And then stage by stage, uh, each one of us can follow that same path—the path of the Buddha, the path of uh, meditators like Ajahn Brahm, and the path of all the great people in the world who have deep meditation and who really enjoy the spiritual practice. So. Okay, that's the talk for today. So there you are. So that is uh, uh, just that's uh, it. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or whatever, this is the time to uh, ask. Yeah, and uh, discuss. You are allowed to disagree with me, but please do so in a kind way, so you don't scare me, because I might. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, okay. Anyone would like to start? We've got we've got two online questions. So if you want to come from the. We have someone over here who would like yes. to yeah just behind you, yeah thank you um I'm just wondering uh you mentioned um kind of flipping our perception of spirituality on its head, like using our life to support our spirituality what are what are some of the ways that we can um do that a bit more specifically, i suppose, so like for instance our workplace how can we use our workplace to support our spirituality or our relationships how, how do we mm. use our relationships with our spouses to support our spirituality yeah sure great yeah, thank you for that it's a very important question so thanks for that and uh, i yeah i talk about this sometimes that's why i didn't go into detail now but just briefly um, Remember that the most important support for meditation practice and the spiritual life is basically how we treat other people, yeah? how we live in society. Yeah? So whether we deal with, whether we are kind or whether we, you know, we don't, that is really what matters. I would, I would say, I very often say that the spiritual life can really be reduced down to kindness. Because uh, if you are kind in a very profound and deep sense, uh, then meditation and all of the other things tend to come together from that. And that gives you the answer to your question. So, you know, in your workplace, ask yourself how you can think about that work situation in a different way. And we always have customers. Yeah. We have coworkers. We have company owners, even. Yeah. We have whoever is has some kind of interest in that company. When you do your work, when you do it well, when you do it in the right way, with care, with kindness, all of these things, all of these people are supported through your work. Yeah. So yes, you get your salary from that work. And of course you have to, but you can add the spiritual component on top of that and making sure you do things in the right way. Yeah? So some of the, one of the problems is that very often we tend to focus too much on the results. Yeah. We want to get the, you know, the company has to bought certain bottom line. You have to meet a certain budget or whatever it is and all this kind of, I think, it's really, it puts too much pressure on people sometimes. Uh, uh, or, uh, you know, you are looking at your more personal thing. You want a promotion, maybe you want a pay rise or whatever. And we focus on the results in life. But every time you focus on the results, you tend to forget the means, yeah, the result become the important thing and the means are subsidiary to the result. Uh, yeah. And this is always very scary because the moment the means are subsidiary to the results, the result become the most important. That is where the morality often comes to a stop. Uh, yeah. Where you start to forget about kindness because the result is what matters. Uh. So we, really, we should turn things the other way down, around. The result is irrelevant. Uh, yeah. What matters is the process. Uh, how we get where we want to go. Uh. Do the, is the process imbued with kindness? Uh? Is the process imbued with a sense of compassion, uh? with understanding the suffering of other people? We're all in this mess together, yeah. Everyone has more suffering in their life than they want to. Huh? And once you get that, then you make the process in your life, what matters, uh, not the results. Uh. And the company may not be so, I don't know if which company is going to be happy with you, but so what? Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's irrelevant. The big picture here is so important uh, that if the company is not 100% happy with you, it doesn't actually matter. But chances are the company will be happy with you because chances are if you do things with kindness, you're creating a good sense feeling in the company. Yeah, you're kind of bringing people together. We're working as a team rather than working as competitors within the same company, which is terrible. Yeah, it creates a bad atmosphere. We're working as a team. We're pulling in the same direction, everyone. And very often you find that when that is happening, the bottom line of the company actually is better. Why? Because you're working with joy. Then you have more energy. You have everything becomes better. There's less backbiting. There's less problems in the workplace and all of that. And then everything kind of goes well. So I, in my experience... Uh, I I have found that very often it is the, the nice people who do the best in corporate life not always sometimes the you know you, you hear about the uh, kind of the uh, uh the psychopaths or whatever who do who do well and maybe there is some truth to that but I think that in the end nice people often win out and if you don't win out it doesn't matter because you win out in a different much more profound way you win out in a spiritual way that is the way that really matters at the end of the day yeah. So that is the work life. Then your family life is the same, yeah. How do you treat your, I don't know if you have a wife or whatever you have, children maybe or whatever, or your parents, yeah, whatever it is. uh, How do we treat them in a way that uh, uh, is? Uh, fits with the spiritual practice? How do I treat them with kindness and compassion? Huh? How do I make sure my temper doesn't kind of get out of control when my kids do something bad? Yeah, This is very difficult to be a parent sometimes. Huh? You love your kids and still sometimes it's just hard to, to stop yourself getting angry and upset with them. Huh? But you make that a real priority because you understand the importance of that. You make that a priority with your partner in life, with your parents. Yeah. And this is one of the things I try to do as a monastic, you know, my, you know, looking after my parents in the right way. And it, it, it's tremendously powerful. My, my, it might really turned my parents around. When I first became a monk, they said, okay, well, we've lost our son. Yeah. We, our upbringing failed. Yeah. Everything has gone completely wrong. That's how they, because they didn't know anything about Buddhism. They thought it was some kind of cult or something. I was brainwashed. I was beyond any kind of no way of retracting me from that, uh, that dodgy cult. So, but, Over time, as you live well, as you treat your parents in the right way, don't try to convert them. That's the last thing you should do they come around and towards the end my father passed away now a couple of years ago but uh, towards the end of his life uh, yeah my father was the person who would say to me let's sit down and meditate let's sit down and have a short dhamma talk yeah and then he would he was kind of the, so he would bring the whole family together yeah my brother my sister all the kind of in-laws and we all sit and sit them all down and then we we would do dhamma discussions and have a dhamma talk and meditate together it was amazing yeah it was such a turnaround and this is what i think kindness does not to everyone, but to a lot of people. It brings them around uh, and it kind of creates that sense of harmony and a very positive feeling as a consequence. Uh, so, everything you do in your life, imbue it with those qualities. Those are the spiritual qualities. Imbue it everything with kindness, with care, with compassion. Uh, and then you're practicing bringing the spiritual life into the daily life. Uh, it enhances both the daily life, it also enhances your spiritual path. Uh, everything benefits from that. Uh, then I think you are on the right track. Yeah.
0: Um, so we have a few online questions. Yeah, please, sir. Yes, uh, question one from Sarah. Dear Ajan, my 44-year-old brother tried to kill himself and has asked me not to tell mum and to lie to her until he's ready to tell her. Um, she would like to know... Uh, Sorry, there's a couple of yeah. questions. This question, we I was find it. Yeah. yeah, she would like to know... Uh, how to resolve this clash between right action of respecting his brother Mm. and wrong speech of misleading mom. Um, He's okay and getting professional help already. Thank you.
1: Okay. So, um, Yeah, you know, remember that um, it's important to remember that uh, uh, right speech and right action is very relative. Uh, It depends on your motivation, why you're doing things. Uh, So in a situation like this, the first thing I would say is that uh, try to avoid lying if you can. Try to say, oh, mom, I don't want to talk about this now. Come back to me, you know, later on. It's just too difficult or something. Say something where you don't outright lie, but you also don't have to say it, uh, asking for compassion or, or say whatever it is that you do, yeah, to kind of avoid lying. But if you do have to lie in that kind of situation, it is not a very bad lie, yeah, because you're coming from compassion, you're trying to, I mean, obviously, uh, your brother Sarah. I don't know if you're hearing me right now online, maybe you are, obviously in a very distraught and difficult position. It's very hard to talk about these kind of things. It's very personal. And uh, so I think in this case, it's very, it's very important that your brother be allowed to Uh, come out and talk about this when he is ready. Uh, If you force these things, often they can be even more traumatic and they can lead to even more difficulties. Uh, So we have to remember that these precepts are not set in concrete. They're not absolute standards. It depends enormously what our motivation and intention is when we do these things. If your motivation is anger or ill will or greed or something like that, of course it is bad. But if your motivation is compassion, is kindness, is a bigger picture of understanding things, then it is not necessarily bad. In certain situations it might even be good if you're coming from compassion. So, don't worry. If you have to be a little bit evasive with the truth in this case, then uh, you know, that's okay. But uh, even then, try if you can, instead of uh, uh, lying, try if you can just to kind of uh, you know, navigate it a little bit without uh, saying what your brother is doing here, or has done.
0: Thank you, Ajahn. The second question is from Norma from Fort Lauderdale, US. Question. How can you control this, your speech, even when you understand right speech, but if you have tendency with so much energy, um, almost spectrum autistic, uh, how can you control your response? Hmm. Um, yep, yeah, thank you.
1: How can you control the response? Uh, one of the ways of controlling it is to speak less. Yeah, This is one of the things that I have found very useful in my, my own life. <laughs> So, and this is what the Buddha says. It was interesting. I was just reading recently. I was looking at the idea of right speech because we were doing a workshop in, in Perth on the Noble Eightfold Path. And one of those great suttas, the Buddha says, well, if you speak a lot, four bad things happen. Why? What? You lie, you speak divisive speech, you speak harsh speech, and you speak idle chatter. Yeah. You speak a lot. These things just come out. Yeah. Because that's what a lot of speech does. It reflects our mind. And because our minds aren't entirely pure, Bad things come out, so speaking a little speaking not speaking much is actually a great way of reducing bad speech so this is maybe the first one speak less don 't necessarily respond, yeah, learn to just uh, kind of if people talk just you know nod and smile, and say, "Oh yeah, sure, whatever you know i 'll talk to you later or whatever i don 't know why you know something like that is a little bit evasive without being rude, you know. And so this is the, how you, this is one way of dealing with it, speaking less. Uh, another very important thing, and this is exactly what we've been talking about now, is the idea of right view. Keeping that right view at the back of your mind at all times, remembering how important these things actually are. Every time you make a mistake in your speech or your actions or even in your thoughts, you're taking a step backwards on the path. Can you afford to take a step backwards? The answer is no. Yeah, this is what life is about. It's about moving forward on the path. Every time you make a mistake, you're letting yourself down and you're not make going forward anymore. And so being very clear about that and having that as a very kind of strong thing at the back of your mind at all times. Yeah, remembering the importance of these things. This is about your meaning of your entire life. That is what the spiritual path is about. And when you get the significance of these things, the importance of these things, uh, by listening to the Dhamma again and again, by reflecting on what is going on, establishing that kind of right view, uh, then when you come in a situation where you you, you feel the. Compunction I must talk it can be very compelling, very strong force that you have to speak actually one day you don't speak at that particular point yeah instead you you remain quiet or you say something or you lead the conversation in a different direction or whatever it is that you do, but you don't actually react because you know you know what is going on so that is a that is a, an important part of this another one is to remember that very often when People talk to you and they say something that you don't like or something that you want to react to. One of the important things to remember, that is not personal. Yeah, when people say something to you, it feels personal, but actually it is not personal. Why is that? Because the other person, they are acting, speaking out of their own conditioning. It's would be relevant whether you are there or some other person like you was there, they would be saying the same thing because their conditioning is such. They have to speak at that time. It's about them, not about you. And once you take that personalness out of the equation, it's much easier not to respond. The reason why we respond, the reason why we get angry, the reason why we cannot stop us from saying something in this particular case is precisely because we take it personally. Don't take it personally, the issue is largely gone. So remember, it's never personal. Nothing in life is ever personal. Everything is just conditioning. People say things because of their own inner demons, their own inner, their own past, their own inner programming, their own inner robot is coming out. And that inner robot is often misprogrammed and it misfires and it says stupid things. But why get angry with a robot? Why respond to a robot? If a robot comes up to you and says, you are bad i you do bad things uh, you probably would laugh yeah you wouldn't uh, you certainly wouldn't react to what the robot is saying uh, people are like that people are robots people are on programs they don't know what they're doing uh, there's no need to respond to a robot uh, so just uh, yeah so this is a very useful way that comes from the whole buddhist idea of non-self uh, yeah that we are conditioned we are just uh, uh, the way we are it comes from the past, uh, this life, maybe previous lives or whatever it is. Uh, anyway, that's, think about that. Uh, reflect on those things. Uh, you may think that, uh, you, may, uh, you may. I don't know if you like what I've said or you find it useful, but think about it. Uh, and some of these techniques are actually extraordinarily useful and very powerful to help you overcome uh, these issues of morality and things. Uh, okay we have got two more questions. Two, yeah, okay. About what about time people time? who are here? Anyone want to ask anything? Because I want to give people here a chance because yeah. so, you're live. Uh, Hello again. Good
0: yeah. to see you again. Yeah. Um, how do I fit in my daily life as a lay person, like in terms of Dharma, Sila, and Bhavana? Like, and also the five precepts, does it count as a Sila, or like that's to be minimum like eight or ten precepts?
1: 227. <laughs> 311 for the nuns. That's uh, I reckon that's the minimum. Yeah. But <laughs> no. I um five precepts is great. Please keep the five precepts. I would not necessarily uh, recommend keeping the eight precepts as a layperson because life is so busy. And if you don't eat in the afternoon, it may just mm. make life really hard. Yeah. And so don't no, keep the five. That's good enough. And you know, enjoying the sensual things of the world is not. Very bad, according to the Buddha. It's not going to drag you down a lot. So a bit of enjoyment of the sensual things in the world is almost a requirement to have an enjoyable life. Otherwise, life might end up being too miserable. And then, you know, you are, that's not the idea either. But more important in terms of virtue is the idea of kindness. Yeah? The five precepts are not really in themselves about kindness. They're more about avoiding doing bad things. But on top of avoiding doing bad things, do good things. Yeah, That is really, I think, the most important thing to do in life. So always have that at the back of your mind. How can I be more kind? How can I treat people in a better way? How can I understand people better? Yeah? And uh, a lot of that has to do with right view again, understanding people in the right way. Because when you understand them in the right way, actually kindness comes almost automatically uh- Yeah. If you remember the suffering of people in the world, remember how out of control they are, how non-self they are, how they are like little robots going, walking around. Yeah. You start to have a sense of, yeah, okay. I should, I should be kinder to people. That is really the kind of the holy, the the holy grail almost of Buddhist practice. Yeah. That, that ability to turn around and be more kinder. When it comes to bhavana, In terms of meditation practice, uh, use that largely to support your kindness in life, yeah. So that you are more chilled, you're more relaxed when you meet people. Uh, You don't react so quickly, yeah, in their presence. uh, Very easy to be reactive sometimes. You're not so reactive anymore. and uh, so use it mostly for that, and occasionally you may even have really beautiful meditations even in ordinary life. Yeah, don't expect that. Yeah, this is one of the things we're talking about. Don't expect it. Uh, uh, use it only to relax and to enjoy, yeah? and then occasionally you have something really beautiful happening. Yeah? And as you do all of this, all of these things coming together, then when you eventually you go on a retreat somewhere, yeah, whatever that might be, uh, you find that you have changed. Uh, You're you more mindful. Uh, You're more. Uh, Ability to watch the breath or whatever, uh, because uh, you have done the right thing in ordinary life. Uh.
0: And I just want to say the meditation tips that you gave, like this morning, yeah. was like I felt like it's personal that like, catered for me. Like uh, there's all the questions that I have, and like uh, okay. you answer all my questions. Thank okay,
1: you so much. marvelous! Wow, that's really nice to hear. So yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> okay, anyone else? Okay, let's go online, uh, online again.
0: Okay, Ajan, uh, the third question from Huey, Tokyo, Japan. (laughs) My friends were frustrated with me when I started renouncing entertainment. I couldn't be with them in the end. Was it possible for me to be around them? Now I only uh, have a few friends. (laughs)
1: You don't need that many friends, right? Let's face it. Few friends is better to have few good friends than to have many scallywags as your friends. And. Um, I, I, this is a question I've come across quite a lot. Yeah. People come, oh, yeah, you know, I don't really want to be sociable anymore. And all the people I used to be sociable with, they just talk about things that I'm not interested in talking about. And sometimes they drag me down because they talk about worldly things that are completely, utterly irrelevant and just depressing and, and lead your mind astray. So. You know, don't, I would say, don't worry too much about having, uh, you know, losing a few friends. I don't think it's a big deal. Make sure, though, that you have enough friends to make life enjoyable. Don't make life miserable because that is the last thing you want to do. But letting go of a few friends, it is often not a bad idea. One of the things the Buddha talks about is the importance of Kalyana Mitta, yeah, good friendship or spiritual friendship, and also the importance of giving up the Papa Mitta, the evil friends. I'm I'm not saying that your friends are evil, but uh, they may not be as wholesome as you might want them to be, yeah, and they might feel them to be distracting or whatever. So remember that because. The kalyanamitta are the people who influence, who support us to move us forward on the spiritual path, whereas the other ones are the ones who hold us back. So this becomes very, very important. So there isn't any absolute answer to this. I cannot really say. It depends on the circumstances. Make sure you find a balance in your life. Don't take things too far or go too quickly, because if you do, you will suffer again. Find that balance. But there's nothing wrong with being... Antisocial, ne? Yeah, antisocial is great if you if you define sociability in the right way. You know, I don't mean antisocial as in being a, a juvenile delinquent or anything like that. I'm, what I mean is not being interested in the in the social life. It's perfectly fine as a as a Buddhist, perfectly as a serious Buddhist to be like that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would say that a lot of people who I know who are the best meditators they are precisely anti-social in that way. That they don't really enjoy social interactions very much unless it is really purposeful. So uh, yeah so I would say don't worry about it but be careful that you don't make your life miserable or negative or anything like that. Try to find a balance in these things uh, and then you'll be on the right track and eventually you will give up every last friend and you will be a hermit yeah in a cutie somewhere in a nice monastery wearing a nice brown <laughs> robe with a shaven head somewhere maybe 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 something like that who knows who knows what the future brings anyway good luck
0: and the last question Ajahn, from jack is in daily life the mind swings between the inner and the outer how do you stay connected to the inner as one participates in the outer? It seems to be challenging as one moves deeper into self discovery hmm. Thank you
1: so the, um, the the inner in daily life is really mindfulness yeah that's kind of the inner in daily life because mindfulness gives you like a cushion between you and the world outside it's like you have a you have almost like the sense of a like a little bit of a Distance at all times. You're never completely immersed in the world. You have a sense of uh, perspective uh, and a sense of ability to navigate in the world outside. Uh, that's what mindfulness is. It gives you, a, it empowers you uh, and you feel empowered when you have mindfulness. Uh, it's almost as if you feel in charge of your mind. You can decide whether you want to look this way or look that way. Uh, yeah. And you can avoid the defilements from arising because of that mindfulness. Uh, And it feels like you are centered. And that is really the inner life in the ordinary world, that centeredness. And then you have to imbue that mindfulness with right view. I've been talking a lot about right view now. And that right view allows you to look at the world in a beneficial way. You don't allow people to upset you. Because you look at them in the right way. I've just been talking about this before. You don't allow yourself to be too attracted to all the shiny things in the world. Yeah? Why? Because you know their disadvantage, you know the downside, you keep your precepts and all of that. So mindfulness allows you that kind of restraint yeah? where you hold back from those worldly things that are going to be detrimental to you. So that is how you navigate that inner life in the ordinary world. And then you do, as the previous person suggested, you can also cut down on your social engagements a little bit. Yeah, You kind of navigate, you can kind of adjust your life a little bit to make it more suitable for the spiritual practice and the spiritual path. And uh, then you … yeah, so that's what I would say in that particular case.
0: No more questions? Okay, good.
1: I don't believe that, no more questions. But anyway, there's always more questions. (laughs) Okay, everyone, very nice to see you all again. And thank you for having me here at the BSV. And uh, maybe if life remains, as one of our fellow monastics used to say, if life remains, then maybe we'll see you again sometime in the future, here in Perth, on the Internet, or wherever. So let's just uh, finish off by paying respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Is it just the Arahang? Is that what we do? Yeah, so we we'll do that. I Sama not hang some just to finish on film.